0: Thrusting space science into the audio dimension, this is Naked Astronomy.
1: On this special edition of the Naked Astronomy podcast, we look at the astronomical events held at the Cambridge Science Festival. We'll hear from Dr Dan Stark about exploring the early universe, find out what tooth x-rays and telescopes have to do with the man who coined the term Big Bang, and ask if our universe is but one of many. Plus, we catch up with Carolyn Crawford, Andrew Ponson and Dominic Ford to find out what they've been doing this month to bring space science to the wider public. I'm Ben Valsler from The Naked Scientists, and this is Naked Astronomy. Supported by the STFC and Cambridge University's
0: 800th anniversary team, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy.
1: Let's kick off this week by looking back in time as far as we currently can. I met Dan Stark, a researcher at Cambridge University, to find out what we're looking for at the very edge of our observational limits.
2: The the primary goal, one of the main goals of observational cosmology, is to uh, put uh, together a picture of uh, the universe from its origins to the present day. Now, there are several important missing chapters, and these missing chapters contain some of the most important events in cosmic history, the formation of the first stars, galaxies, and black holes. So what we're trying to do is peer back deep enough into space that we can uh, capture uh, these first stars and galaxies as they turn on for the first time. Okay, and so, you know, this is a quest for the origins of the stars. Uh, We'd like to know uh, what these objects are, how they live, how they died. Okay, and we don't just want to find these objects, but it turns out it's quite crucial to understand the nature of these systems, their masses, their metallicities, to put together a picture of early galaxy formation. So this is a crucial missing chapter that we're trying to fill in and observationally characterize. What are our observational limits at the moment? How far can we actually see Well, with the deepest images from Hubble, uh, we can push back about 500 million years after the Big Bang. And at that point, we're really at the limit. I mean, there's one galaxy that we think lies at about that uh, distance. But Hubble's continuing to observe deep space. There are plenty of new programs, data coming in day by day now. So I think within the next three years, we're going to have many more of these galaxies detected 500 million years after the Big Bang. So our picture, our census of the galaxies, the star f- formation in this early interval will, will really be uh, filled in over the next three to four years from Hubble.
1: So if you could
2: paint me a picture, what's going on
1: in the universe such a short period after the Big Bang?
2: Right, so the universe enters the Dark Ages, we believe, about 370,000 years after the Big Bang, uh, when the first stable atoms form. So at this point, the universe is filled uh, largely with, with hydrogen and helium. Okay? And this was before any stars, any galaxies had turned on at some point these these first luminous objects appear we don't know when we don't know what these objects are and over time over you know as these as the hydrogen clouds from which these first stars form uh, begin to to grow in density further we begin to get galaxies we get more and more of these galaxies spread throughout the universe and they grow larger and larger in size they begin to contain more and more stars they begin to have we think black holes in their center you know at the the limits of which where we have reasonable observations now. We have a a landscape, a picture of the universe, say, you know, 900 million years after the Big Bang. We see many galaxies, uh, some containing billions, hundreds of billions of stars in them. This is obviously a dramatically different picture uh, than existed in this earlier dark ages.
1: We obviously have very few observations to rely on so far, but What we are starting to see, does it tally with the theory? Does it
2: tally with what we expect? There's some interesting uh, results, actually. I mean, one of the things we're finding, one of the big questions is what caused this process of reionization? What caused hydrogen in deep space to be disassociated into its constituent electrons and protons? Conventional wisdom, what theorists tell us, is that it's the emergence of, of the first stars, the first galaxies, the UV radiation from massive stars in these systems ionizes it dissociates the hydrogen in deep space. Okay, so what we're able to do with these deep Hubble images, we're able to uh, create a census of the amount of uh, young massive stars in the early universe and see whether indeed there's enough starlight, enough energetic radiation to uh, completely dissociate hydrogen in deep space to achieve this process of reionization owing to the fact that our results are finding fewer and fewer galaxies as we look back uh, early in time, there's actually appearing to be some tension as we see fewer and fewer galaxies in the early universe. Okay, The number of galaxies per unit volume decreases So then the question becomes, are there other energetic sources out there? Perhaps there are mini black holes which are accreting, and as they accrete matter onto them, they pump out hard radiation into deep space, and perhaps there's a significant population of these objects at very early periods. Perhaps there's a set of decaying particles that are sometimes proposed also producing radiation. So, you know, in many ways I think um, the field is still young, but I think there's some tantalizing tension between what the theorists tell us what caused reionization and what the observations are, are telling us as to whether galaxies indeed uh, dominated the process.
1: So what's the next step? What do we need to do now in order to try and relieve some of these tensions or to try and at least find more observations to, to help build the bigger picture?
2: Well uh, there's two steps here. Um, one obviously we need a better census of energetic objects in the early universe. We need to take more data with Hubble, okay? And this is happening as we speak. We're improving our census of the galaxies within this period between 500 million years after the Big Bang and 1 billion years after the Big Bang. And so this is step one. Step two, though, we need to learn more about the physical nature of these early galaxies themselves. Okay, It's not enough to just be able to, to count up these early galaxies. We need to know how much energetic radiation these systems are injecting into deep space. And this involves uh, very detailed studies, which are beyond the capabilities of our current facilities but what we can do now is uh, is look at uh, analogs of these very distant sources in the more local universe and which for me means you know we're talking 2 to 3 billion years after the big bang still so quite early on redshift uh, 2 to 3 Okay, and we look at these analogs, find galaxies that appear very similar to the earliest systems, and we try to understand uh, the physical nature of these of these systems and how much energetic radiation they're producing into deep space. These are two things we need to, to help firm up the contribution of star-forming galaxies to reionization. There are other experiments which are underway to try to not just search for the energetic radiation, but to try to find the hydrogen itself uh, using radio telescopes, searching for the... Signal from this early hydrogen, okay, and by mapping the distribution of hydrogen over time, okay, you can actually begin to to put some picture together of the nature of the sources that were responsible of us so you know when we look a decade in the future, we think hopefully these radio experiments uh, will be working in concert with uh, with our deep galaxy experiments and we 'll be able to put together a picture of where the ionized patches are and what sources are there to do the the ionizing. So I think the future is bright on timescales of 5 to 10 years for uh, firming up uh, the the nature of the, the earliest energetic sources.
1: So the future is bright for the understanding of the past. That was Dan Stark from the Institute of Astronomy in Cambridge. Our own naked astronomer Andrew Ponson was also looking deep into the universe's past with the challenge of introducing the cosmic microwave background radiation to an audience of schoolchildren. Well,
0: I was giving a talk on the cosmic microwave background, which regular listeners to the podcast uh, might have noticed is, is one of my favourite topics. Uh, essentially, this is the afterglow that's left over from the phase when the universe was very young. It was much smaller, very hot and very dense. And at that time, there's a lot of radiation around. It's in what we call thermodynamic equilibrium with the matter in the, in the universe. Since then the universe has has cooled down and that radiation is just sort of left over from from those early days. So I was saying something about that but to make it a bit more challenging uh, I was trying to do this for uh, an audience of families. Uh, It was advertised as sort of uh, 8 plus but in practice I think there were some some younger uh, people there in the audience as well. So obviously I didn't use words like thermodynamic equilibrium at all and uh, instead I was trying to use some Uh, household objects to explain some of the physics and also I explain some of the history of of how we came to know about this stuff.
1: It is obviously a very important topic but it is quite a complicated topic. That was a a wonderful two-minute summary of what it means. You've got an hour to fill and a room with people of of all ages eight and above. How do you use things that are familiar to, to actually get these ideas across?
0: Yeah I mean that's the challenge. Astronomy is a double-edged sword because on the one hand we have these amazing pictures to to show people but on the other hand we can't really do demos like people sometimes associate with these kind of science shows where you you blow something up and that's really good fun but it's not very relevant to astronomy generally. So it's a case of coming up with lots of frankly, daft demonstrations. For instance, we were looking at gravitational waves. Uh, These are the waves predicted by Einstein's theory of gravity. Yet again, for for a young audience, starting from somewhere that's familiar is the challenge. So I started from jelly, because jelly has this sort of rigidity about it. If you try and squash jelly, it tends to sort of splurt out the sides. So we had a sort of rather disgusting demonstration of that and you're um, able to use things like that to provide a sort of concrete starting point for what, as you know,
1: actually turn out to be very abstract ideas. You are struggling with some very difficult ideas, gravitational waves being waves in space-time. I'd imagine... Well, not very many people at all have a good concept of what space-time is at all. Is there now 500 people who think of space-time as being a bit like jelly? I'd like to think
0: so. (laughs) The danger of these analogies, of course, is you can always take them too far. And so I'm very aware of that when I put it together but um, I actually think the the jelly analogy works quite well because um, it does actually reflect a lot of the, the physics that goes on. And so you try to give people an impression that this is just an analogy. Space isn't really made out of jelly, but at the same time give them something to hold on to and a way to think about difficult
1: ideas. So that's gravitational waves in jelly. What else do you need to do to make the cosmic microwave background a bit more comprehensible?
0: Well, I actually find one of the hardest things to explain to a young audience is probably something that's quite familiar to most listeners to to this podcast, where if you look far enough away, you start to see things further and further in the past. Now, when we thought about that quite a lot, it becomes a fairly familiar idea that is obviously the key thing about the microwave background it's by looking to very large distances you're uh, seeing the universe as it was essentially pretty much at the moment of its creation in terms of cosmic history and that is the hardest thing so trying to use simple examples where I was just running around looking daft on stage showing that you know, if you, if you run at a certain speed, it takes you longer to get to things when you have to travel a, a large distance. And it's trying to find concrete, familiar things and then make the step from the familiar thing to the unfamiliar thing as small as possible. And I can give you one more example. I mean, one of the big puzzles with the microwave background is how it manages to be so well organized. If you've seen a picture of the microwave background, there are these ripples in it and those ripples uh, extend across very large portions of the sky, it's actually quite hard to understand why that should be the case, because organising those ripples in the way they're organised takes some doing. Uh, In particular, there's a sort of limit on the amount of time, the minimum amount of time it's going to take. And so I tried to get that idea across by giving everyone in the audience a little coloured ball, and then we tried to organise the whole audience into A big wave covering the whole lecture theatre. I was actually amazed. I I set a time limit of a minute, having never tried this before, and I thought that we're not going to manage it in a minute. It's going to be a great demo because we don't actually understand how the microwave background has managed to be so organised. So we'll get a demo in this lecture theatre of how we can't organise things quickly enough. But then it turned out that, that they were also keen to do it. That actually, it did, it, it did all uh, uh, happen. We got the whole
1: uh, ripple set out in the lecture Theatre in 50 seconds, which I was very impressed by. A good indication of how well you've inspired people and how well they've understood things is the sorts of questions they ask at the end. Were you getting good questions that indicated that jelly and balls and running around looking silly had really hit home?
0: Well, I think so. I mean, there were some really insightful questions at the end. In fact, So to go back to the example of organising yourself on the balls, what I was building up to there was a, a very short description of this thing called cosmic inflation, which one way of thinking about it is it gives the universe a little bit of extra time to get itself organised right at, at, at the beginning. One of the questions was, well, how does inflation actually start and finish? Which is you know, a big open question, in cosmology today so people were coming up with cutting-edge questions by the end so hope, hopefully that
1: meant they'd sort of cottoned on to all the important points Andrew Ponson on the challenges of explaining complex science to young children expand your mind and Neptune in Naked Astronomy the stellar space science show for more episodes of this program look us up online at nakedscientistscom forward slash astronomy this is the Naked Astronomy podcast with me, Ben Valsler. The Cambridge Science Festival is a good opportunity to meet active scientists, but also to learn about the history of scientific research. Katie Birkwood works on the Hoyle project to catalogue, archive, and make available the objects that Sir Fred Hoyle left to St John's College.
3: Fred Hoyle was an astronomer and astrophysicist. He um, was a fellow of St John's College from 1939 to 72, and he was also the university's Plumian Professor of Astronomy and Experimental Philosophy from 1958
1: to 1972. So good credentials then, but outside of St John's, what's he known for?
3: One of the things he's most known for is inventing the phrase Big Bang. He gave a series of radio lectures in 1950 on the BBC um, which were all about astronomy And as part of those, he explained some different theories of where the universe came from. Um, He didn't believe the Big Bang Theory, so in his lecture he talked about that theory and then went on to describe a theory that he held, which was called the Steady State Theory. Um, But he had to have a name to describe the other theory by, and so he said, well, there's this other theory that says the universe was created in a sort of Big Bang. And that phrase really caught on.
1: So despite it being the phrase that we associate with the very birth of the universe now... It actually started out as a term of denigration for the theory.
3: Mm. The term itself wasn't necessarily a term he used to denigrate the theory. It was descriptive, I think, but then what he went on to say about the theory wasn't very nice. Um, I can't remember the exact quote, but it's something like, it's a theory that doesn't really stand up mathematically. So he wasn't very nice about the theory, which was sort of symbolic of what Fred was like in all his life. If he didn't agree with something, you'd definitely know that he didn't agree. Today, the Big Bang Theory is generally thought to be the correct theory, but Fred never changed his views. He continued to hold with the steady state theory and continued to publish about it. Some of his last publications in his life were about the steady state theory.
1: The Hoyle project here at St. John's, you've been going through some of the belongings, some of the notes he left behind. What sort of things have you been finding?
3: it's very difficult to summarise them. Um, It's sort of a representative sample almost of everything that a person amasses throughout their life. Mainly it's papers, so there's things like drafts of his articles, drafts of his science fiction writing, personal and professional letters and correspondence, also photographs, both family photographs, and sort of photographs of Fred at conferences and that sort of thing. Um, We also have artefacts, so Fred is a very keen hill walker, so we have his walking boots and his rucksack and two of his ice axes. We also have things like part of his chemistry set that he had when he was a boy, also the telescope he used when he was a boy. So there's a whole mix of different things, some sort of serious library things and some more personal items.
1: So this really forms a a museum of Hoyle, as it were, but is there something else that we can glean from these notes? Can they actually help to inform modern astronomy as well?
3: I suppose they can. I think it's always important that disciplines know where they come from and what the history is. Fred Hoyle's still quite a potent figure in modern astronomy. Um, for example, the Institute of Astronomy, which is sort of Cambridge's Department of Astronomy, or one of them, lives in a building that was first built by Fred, for an institute that he set up called the Institute of Theoretical Astronomy and that main building that he had built is now known as the Hoyle Building. So if you're doing astronomy in Cambridge it's hard to escape him. Um, And some of his scientific research is also still very valid today. Um, He researched into the origin of the chemical elements in stars that's called stellar nuclear synthesis and in 1957 he published a big paper with three other colleagues about that and that's still cited very heavily today so a lot of his research is still used in a practical way today.
1: The Institute of Astronomy Hoyle Building is an incredible piece of architecture, really. It's a very nice place to visit, but it must be a wonderful place to work because there are lots of open spaces where people can get together to share ideas. I believe he actually designed the building as well as having it built. So was that his plan? Did he think that science progresses best when people can discuss and get together?
3: Yes, Fred was very keen on people being able to talk about their ideas and share ideas. He drew a plan of how he wanted the building to look just on a piece of lined paper in his normal fountain pen one day and it's pretty much a long thin rectangle with a great big wide corridor all the way down the middle of it with little rooms either side and that's more or less what the building looks like today. He, wanted, he stipulated that there must be a wide corridor and that it must be carpeted and that the people who were financing the, the building weren't very keen on the carpet because it was expensive, but he said it had to be carpeted so that people walking up and down wouldn't disturb people in the rooms. Um, he also wrote on the plan that there should be a library but that there wouldn't be many books in it, that it would just be a place that people could go and talk to each other.
1: Well, that sounds wonderful and it is a very nice place to visit. If people want to find out more about Hoyle himself or about his work... Can they come and see things here at St John's?
3: Um, Yes they can. The archive is now mostly catalogued so if they want to find out more they can look on our website and get in touch with the librarians here. Um, We're open to researchers who want to look at any of our material for any reason. That's not just the Hoyle papers, that's anything we have in the library which includes rare books and manuscripts and papers of other astronomers including um, John Herschel and John Cooch Adams. And we're very happy to, to see people who want to research Hoyle's life further.
1: And just finally, you've been cataloguing, archiving, going through all of his belongings. What's been the one thing that really stood out to you? What's your favourite thing that you've found?
3: I'm going to take two. Um, (laughs) I can't choose one. There have been a couple of things that I've discovered whilst cataloguing that had sort of slipped from view, that hadn't been picked up in writing about Hoyle before and even that his family didn't necessarily know were in the collection. One is a letter that Fred wrote when he was 15 to his father, Um, just after he'd bought a telescope. Fred's parents weren't very rich, but they managed to get together the the money to buy Fred a telescope, and Fred and his mum went down to London to buy it. And as soon as they got it back to where they were staying, Fred set it up and started using it. And once he'd done that, he wrote his father an eight-page letter saying all the lovely things he'd seen through the telescope. And it's the, the most charming letter I've ever read, um, because it 's so enthusiastic, he says we looked I looked at the sun through the solar filter and it was it looked like blue sky, but then when you looked at the blue sky, that was black, so it was clearly the sun and then we looked at different stars and it split this this binary star." To so far apart in the field of view it was amazing and then there was this mystery thing in the sky that we couldn't work out what it was and some people thought it was one star and I thought maybe it was Saturn and I looked through the telescope and it was Saturn we saw a, a white band and then a black band and then a white band and then, another. and then he draws a picture of Saturn on this letter and if you've ever looked through a telescope at Saturn you'll recognise that picture immediately and you'll recognise the enthusiasm in this letter because it is a beautiful sight and that's just so evident from Fred's letter. So that's probably my real favourite thing in the collection. The thing that most surprised me in the collection was finding Fred's wife's dental x-rays from 1949 (laughs) in one box. She was having trouble with her wisdom teeth and the dentist sent her a copy of the x-rays and a little letter that said we don't need to take them out now but we might need to consider it in the future.
1: Katie Birkwood from the St John's Hoyle Project. Looking even further back into the history of astronomy, Dominic Ford spent the day helping people to make replicas of an ancient piece of astronomical equipment, the astrolabe.
4: Astrolabes were really the most widely used, sophisticated astronomical instrument from a period that spanned from 150 years BC, the time of the ancient Greeks, through until about 1600, when they started to be superseded by telescopes and by more accurate forms of timekeeping. But for this really quite long span of history, they were instruments used by astronomers to know what stars would be in the sky at night, and they were also used as timekeeping tools. So you could look at what altitude the sun was in the sky, and from that you could work out what the time of day was. And you have one here to show us. How
1: does this work? It looks like a compass in a way. It's circular and has an internal part that can move around.
4: That's right. What we have here is a disc-shaped piece of card and it's got two sides to it. It's got one side which is rather like a calendar and this is telling you where the sun is in the sky on any given day of the year. And then the other side is rather like what we would now call a planisphere which is something amateur astronomers use for knowing what stars are up in the sky at any given time of night. On this planisphere, you've got marked out the path that the Sun takes through the the course of the year. And having looked at the other side and seen where the Sun is among the constellations, you can pick out the Sun on this map of the night sky, and you can see the Sun's path through the course of the day. So, for example, if you know what the altitude of the Sun is, you can line up this star chart, place the sun at that altitude against the lines of altitude behind, and you can see what the time of day is from this astrolabe. So you can use it to tell the time from how high the sun is in the sky. Alternatively, if you're observing at night, you can see what stars will be visible in the sky at any given time of night. Or conversely, if you know what stars you can see, you can align the astrolabe against those stars and work out what time of night it is. So despite being a very
1: simple piece of equipment, it's actually a very sophisticated device. How accurate is it? Again, it seems like such a simple bit of kit, but is it entirely reliable?
4: This is a good point. It's obviously quite a small piece of equipment. It's perhaps five or six inches across. It had to be that size because it has to be manageable. It has to be something that you can carry around with you and use. But that does mean its accuracy is limited to perhaps a few degrees. And whilst that's sufficient if you want to know roughly what time of day it is or roughly what's going to be above the horizon, if you want to make accurate astronomical measurements, this is not a very good instrument for that. And that's really why it came to be superseded in about 1600 when astronomers like Tycho Brahe were reforming planetary models to astounding precision of fractions of a degree and you needed much more accurate instruments to make those measurements.
1: So 2,000 years ago, these have been in use for maybe a couple of hundred years, how revered were they? Did people make them out of gold, or were they really just
4: something that people used as a very functional device? They were massive status symbols. They would be made of brass, which was at the time a very expensive metal, it's still fairly expensive, It's made of copper and tin, and tin is a a very expensive metal. And these were things that you would show off as a status symbol. I've got this very ornately carved athelabe. It cost a fortune. I'm rich. I'm important.
1: And so, therefore, they must turn up in the archaeological record.
4: That's right, yes. There are a huge number of specimens that you can see in museums. For example, in the Whipple Museum here in Cambridge, there's, there's a large collection They also turn up in naval museums because they were used by seamen to know what latitude they were at when they were at sea, which was important for navigation. You would look for, for example, the pole star, and you would look at how high the pole star was in the sky, and from that you would know what your latitude was.
1: Would this astrolabe work anywhere in the world, or is it
4: specific just to here? So this astrolabe we've got here is specially tuned for the latitude of 50 degrees north for Cambridge. It would work just as well in, for example, Canada, which has the same latitude as us. But it wouldn't work so well in France or Spain, which is towards the south. And so you see different stars because you're at a different latitude. However, astrolabes were sophisticated instruments and an ancient astrolabe would have been adjustable you would have different plates that you could slot in for different latitudes to give the sky at the particular latitude where you were. So this is a simplified example for just one latitude, but they'd thought of this in ancient times, and they'd made them adjustable. So,
1: as we said, this one is made out of card and a few bits of plastic. Is it something that people could make at home?
4: That's right. All of the instructions that people have been following at the event today are available online together with a kit that you can print out at home. You just need some card to print the templates onto and a piece of transparent plastic often sold as overhead projector slides. And if you Google for St John's College Astrolabe, it will come up. I'm sure there'll be a link from the podcast as well. And you can download it and have fun.
1: That was our own Dominic Ford, and this is the Naked Astronomy podcast. If you've got any questions or comments for us, get in touch by email to astronomy at com. In a few minutes, we'll find out what Carolyn Crawford has planned for the Institute of Astronomy Open Day. But first, moving away from the science festival, Louise Ogden continues her series looking at our big telescopes, this time the Chandra Space Telescope.
5: Highly energetic sources throughout the universe emit x-rays. This part of the electromagnetic spectrum can't be viewed from the Earth because the photons are absorbed by our atmosphere. The Chandra X-ray Telescope was launched in 1999 in order to observe these X-ray sources. And over a decade later, Chandra is still performing at its very best, and in fact has been scheduled to continue working for another 10 years. I spoke to Harvey Tannenbaum, the director of the Chandra X-ray Center at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Cambridge, Massachusetts, about the role that Chandra has played in increasing our understanding of the universe.
6: Chandra is a very uh, special uh, telescope in that it images X-rays coming to us from stars and galaxies out there in the universe, and by focusing on X-rays, Chandra is looking at places where cosmic violence either heats uh, gases to very high temperatures or excites particles to very high energies, and so we're looking at places where stars explode, material falls on top of a neutron star or a black hole or generally very strong gravity or strong magnetic fields uh, are, are present. And in that sense, uh, looking at parts of the universe that may not be visible by ordinary optical radio and infrared telescopes.
5: So was Chandra the, the first X-ray telescope that we had? I assume that we can only see X-rays if we're out of the Earth's atmosphere.
6: Yes, we have to go above the Earth's atmosphere. The Earth's atmosphere absorbs uh, X-rays uh, very efficiently. In fact, it's very important. It protects us from what would otherwise be damaging uh, X-ray radiation from the sun, for example. So by using rockets and uh, satellites to get above the Earth's atmosphere, uh, the United States, uh, the European Space Agency, various individual countries in Europe, and Japan have all mounted uh, satellites to uh, study the uh, x-ray aspects of the universe. The, the, the real gains with Chandra result from its superior uh, imaging properties. It basically takes pictures that are ten times sharper than any previous x-ray telescope. So by focusing the uh, signal down onto the uh, detector, Chandra is able to uh, see features that simply couldn't be detected in the past uh, and is able to resolve specific uh, aspects of images Uh, with incredibly greater detail than previous X-ray telescopes.
5: And Chandra was uh, launched quite a while ago now, wasn't it?
6: Chandra was launched in July of 1999. It was nominally designed to have a five-year lifetime, but there's nothing on board which currently limits the life to anything short of of a decade already completed and hopefully at least another decade to come. I should also mention that there's a a very complementary uh, observatory called the xmm Uh, Newton Observatory, which is uh, primarily uh, a European Space Agency mission. It launched uh, just a few months after Chandra, so it's been up and working in orbit for more than a decade as well. It doesn't quite have the imaging power that Chandra has, uh, but it actually contains uh, larger mirrors and collects more x-rays. So for energy studies and timing studies, it's a fantastic uh, observatory as well.
5: Whereabouts is it orbit then? I assume it's not very close to the Earth.
6: Yeah, Chandra is uh, quite a ways up above the Earth. It's in what we call an elliptical high-Earth orbit, so it sort of looks like an egg-shaped orbit. It comes down as close as a few thousand kilometers above the surface of the Earth, and it moves out as far as about 140 to 150,000 kilometers, equivalent of about a third of the distance out to the moon, over a period of years, the orbit sort of breathes, so the low point can become higher, the high point can become lower, but the time for the orbit is uh, about two and a half days for Chandra to make one revolution around the Earth.
5: Why is it in an orbit rather than at a Lagrangian point in a stable place?
6: It takes just a bit more lift power to go all the way out to Lagrangian point in a, in a stable orbit, and uh, we basically wanted to pack as much of the mirrors and the detectors into the uh, satellite as we could. So, for Chandra, the uh, mass limitations led to a trade off between going all the way out to Lagrangian orbit versus these highly elliptical uh, Earth orbits. We get quite a, a high viewing efficiency. We're actually able to do science between 70 and 75 percent of the time in the orbit that Chandra's in. At the Lagrangian point, it might be closer to 90 or 95 percent, but we probably have about 50% more uh, collecting area than we would have been able to pack in had we gone to a still further orbit. Originally, the plan was to, in fact, put Chandra in an orbit quite comparable to Hubble and then service it so that uh, replacement instruments could be put on board uh, every so often, at the time that Chander was put into its final design stages in the early 1990s, it was recognized that the costs of servicing are actually very, very substantial. So, The decision was made to put it into a uh, more benign kind of a, an orbit away from the Earth so that it didn't cycle from day to night every. 90 minutes so the power didn't have to go on and off and the temperatures go up and down. Uh, but by putting it uh, in this higher orbit, uh, uh, there was no longer a temptation to uh, demand servicing if something unexpected went wrong and simply was a budgetary trade off.
5: What's your highlight of Chandra's mission?
6: First and foremost, uh, probably the most exciting moment of Chandra was when we actually started taking the first images and we could actually confirm all of the mechanical devices worked. The doors opened and the telescope actually focused the x-rays to a very sharp image on the uh, cameras at the at the other end of the observatory. Uh, the f- official first light picture was of a supernova remnant, the aftermath of an explosion. Uh, it's the supernova remnant named Cassiopeia A., And in just about uh, an hour and a half's observation, Chandra was able to detect the neutron star, the little point-like source in the middle of the image that we were quite sure must have been formed at the time of the explosion about 300 years ago, but previous X-ray telescopes simply didn't have the sensitivity and resolving power to find that little source. Uh, Chandra found it in the first 90 minutes. A couple of the highlights that I would focus on from Chandra are the discovery that that black holes exist in almost all uh, large galaxies. And in many cases, material falling onto those black holes generates a substantial amount of X-ray radiation, which Chandra is able to detect. So in many ways, Chandra is a black hole-finding machine.
1: Harvey Tannenbaum speaking with
6: Louise Ogden.
1: Now, Carolyn Crawford explains what goes on when the Institute of Astronomy throws open its doors to the public.
7: Well, our main activities, we open up for the Saturday afternoon and it's just open doors and we've got lots of demonstrations and posters and activities and talks and just entertaining stuff going on all about astronomy.
1: Is it generally for families or is it for people who want to look a bit more in-depth into astronomy or is it just for anyone?
7: Well, we get such a range of audience. We do try and cater for everyone. So there's something for the people, the keen amateurs who want to know a bit more and actually meet some astronomers and talk to them. But in practice, a lot of our audience is families, So we do have a lot of craft activities and maybe art activities and even just running around activities really just meant to work some energy off and uh, keep the families organized and entertained as well.
1: One of the make and do activities you have, it's genius in its simplicity, but it's a spectroscope made from a CD. How does that work?
7: Oh, we're very proud of these. It's really to time with the idea that this is the International Year of Chemistry. And of course, astronomers, once you get outside the solar system, we only have light that we can work with. Is the only way we find out about stuff that's out there in cosmic objects and so part of this activity is showing how we use light and we split it into its constituent colours and then how we use this resulting spectrum to discover about the light source or about matter between us and the light source. So we're exploring the idea of emission lines and absorption lines and continuum spectra. And the best way to demonstrate it is to actually have people make this this little spectroscope, very quick to make, they can take it home afterwards, and then just try it out on different light sources. So at the minute, here in my office, I'm assembling different light bulbs and light sources that people can try their spectroscopes out on. And hopefully they'll see that we can determine things like the elements that are emit in a cloud of gas emitting this light. We can also explain about how we can work things out about the density and temperature of the cloud of gas. We can also work out how a material is moving from the blue shift and the red shift, and in, in effect, just build up a picture of all the information we can get from a spectrum.
1: So there's lots of important lessons to learn from a very, very simple bit of
7: kit. Yes, all you need is a dead CD and a bit of cardboard, and we'll show you how to construct your very own spectroscope.
1: So while the children are making and doing and running about, what is there for adults who might want to go a bit deeper into the information?
7: Well, of course, we've got some demonstrations which are geared much more to adults, um, maybe talking about things like gravitational lensing, uh, we've even got remote sensing from balloon. So we're going to have a large tethered balloon and just talk about the concept of how astronomers use, well, and geologists use that, for mapping out planetary surfaces from above. And, of course, we've got talks. There are always talks running in the lecture theatre. Again, some are geared for, more for children, but then some are quite in-depth topics such as supermassive black holes in the hearts of galaxies and how we know about them, or there's one about the history of our understanding of the Milky Way. We try and have a range of topics covered. And of course, there are always astronomers everywhere staffing all the activities. And so there are people to actually talk to and and to quiz and question. Another thing that we have that's quite a good resource here is we have a library, a historical library at the Institute. And our li- librarian is putting together a wonderful exhibition. It's called Spectra from the Stars, so it's carrying on this idea of using spectra and light. But it's showcasing the work of uh, Sir William and Lady Huggins, who are both very keen amateur astronomers. But it's, he's using photographs and signed preprints from them and constructing display all about their pioneering work on stellar spectroscopy.
1: Once the sun goes down your activities don't stop. You're also doing public observing. Now, what can people actually come and observe?
7: Well, I will hasten to add, we can only do public observing if it's actually clear, which uh, who knows at this stage whether it will be. We do a twofold thing. First of all, we've got a couple of historical, so Victorian telescopes, which are fantastic because people can go and put their eye to the eyepiece and look through them. And these look like you expect a a telescope to look. They're large buildings with with grand structures in them. So people can queue and look through those telescopes. We also have small baby telescopes around that people can on binoculars we can lend. The other feature, though, is we run a floor show with the local Cambridge Astronomical Association, and they have three large modern telescopes where they pipe the output through... A computer out to a data projector and so they have a display from three telescopes at once and they have a floor show where they actually talk they have mic they're mic'd up and they talk about what you're seeing give you a sort of guide around the sky so it's a bit of combination of everything
1: the public observing at the science festival is presumably quite an important one because although you do it throughout the winter this is probably the last
7: chance It will be the last chance for this winter season. We run right through October through to March when the hour changes. And so this Saturday is your last opportunity.
1: And finally this month, we hear from Brian Green, Professor of Physics and Mathematics at Columbia University. In his new book, The Hidden Reality, he explores nine different scientific ideas that all suggest we live in some sort of multiverse. It may sound like philosophical speculation, or even science fiction, but multiverses consistently arrive from our mathematical descriptions of the
8: universe, and really do deserve to be taken seriously. We're asking one of the grandest of all questions, which is, is our universe the only universe? And that, at first sight, is a strange question, because we're used to thinking of universe to mean everything, the totality, But a lot of research from a variety of different directions over the last few decades have suggested that what we long thought to be everything may not be everything. It may be a piece of a larger whole. And that larger whole may contain other universes. And that's where we come to the idea of multiple universe.
1: There are actually quite a few different theories born of, largely from the maths. How do we try and tie them all together? Are they at the moment just competing ideas? Or are they all actually pieces of one larger jigsaw?
8: Well, in in my book, I actually describe nine different variations on the theme of multiverse, and there are relationships between them, but we have not yet developed any kind of meta multiverse framework in which all of these proposals would sit. They're not necessarily mutually exclusive. we don 't know if any of these are right. We will only know that when there's some experimental or observational evidence but we're taking the idea seriously because our mathematical investigations lead us to this idea. We don't impose this idea from the outside. We follow the math, see where it takes us, and time and again, it's suggesting that there may be other universes. Following the maths is obviously a very good way to get at what
1: may be objectively the truth, but trying to understand these in human terms is very difficult. It's very counterintuitive. How do you get around trying to explain to people what's the results of these numbers might actually mean
8: well a number of the multiverse proposals are not that hard to grasp for instance we all know of the big bang right we have been trying to understand the big bang with greater precision in recent decades than we did in the past in essence we've been trying to fill in a missing piece of the big bang theory which is what started the bang what was the bang what started space to undergo this outward swelling We now have a proposal on the table. It's called Inflationary Cosmology. The name is not all that important, but I bring it up because when we study the math of this proposal, it suggests that the Big Bang may not have been a unique one-time event. There may be many Big Bangs, each giving rise to its own swelling realm of space. It's as if our universe is a growing bubble in a grand cosmic bubble bath with other universes. That is a strange idea but it's not that hard to wrap your mind around this possibility and this is one of the proposals that I discuss in the book.
1: As well as looking at things on the grand scale of the entire universe, we have to consider things at the subatomic scale smaller than we currently know about. How does that fit into the idea of looking at parallel or multiple universes?
8: Well, you wouldn't think that it would. When studying tiny things, molecules, atoms, subatomic particles, That would not suggest that you are en route to a theory of parallel universes. But surprisingly, we have found that it does lead to that possibility from a number of different perspectives. Let me just give you one. So quantum mechanics, the study of the smallest ingredients in the world, broke the older Newtonian model of the world by saying that you can't predict with absolute certainty the result of any experiment. You can only predict the probability of getting one outcome or another. The electrons say 50% chance being here, 50% chance of being over there. Now, that's weird enough, a world governed by probabilities, but a puzzle that still persists to this day is when you do a measurement of the electron, you find it at one location or another. So what happened to the other possible outcome? One suggestion is that it happened too. You saw the electron over here in one universe, but the math suggests that there was a copy of you who sees the electron over there in another universe, two universes coming from the probabilistic framework of the quantum world, multiple universes. So would the
1: implication of there being multiple universes be that there are actually lots and lots of me pointing lots and lots of microphones at lots and lots of you all throughout this multiverse in, with very, very slight differences between them?
8: Uh, It's quite possible. In some of the multiverse scenarios, exactly that would happen. For instance, in perhaps the simplest of all multiverses, it comes from imagining that space goes on infinitely far. We don't know that it does. Maybe it curves back on itself like the surface of the Earth, but if it does go infinitely far... There is a breathtaking conclusion along the lines of what you just mentioned, which is this. In any finite region of space, matter can only arrange itself in finitely many different ways. It's like if you take a deck of cards. This is my favorite analogy to describe this. If you shuffle the deck, the cards come out in different orders. But there are only finitely many different orders for the cards. So if you shuffle the deck enough times, the order of the cards must repeat. No way around it. Similarly, if space goes on infinitely far, then the order of the particles, region by region by region, must repeat too. There just aren't enough different arrangements to go around. Now, you and I, were just an arrangement of particles. If the arrangement repeats out there, then we're having this conversation out there. And like you say, it's even easier for the particle arrangement to almost but not exactly repeat. That would mean that perhaps I'm interviewing you in one of those universes. So it's a startling idea but it comes from simple assumption. Space goes on infinitely far and also hidden assumption as well. The laws of physics that we know about here are the laws of physics everywhere so that we can actually say something sensible about what happens out there. But under those mild assumptions, you come to this startling conclusion. How
1: can other areas of science actually play a part. We've already mentioned cosmology, we've mentioned astronomers, we've mentioned particle physics. How are these different groups all feeding into finding the same answer?
8: Well, I think the different groups play different but overlapping and complementary roles. When we talk about multiple Big Bangs, this comes from inflationary cosmology, which makes some predictions that observational astronomers can look to the sky and try to test Inflationary cosmology says some very definite things about the microwave background radiation. This is heat left over from our Big Bang. It speaks to tiny temperature differences in the sky that inflationary cosmology implies should be there. The observational astronomers turn telescopes skyward, and they have found those tiny temperature differences in the sky, confirming one prediction of this approach. And then when those ideas also suggest something else that may... Seem more far out like multiple universes, we're compelled to take that idea seriously.
1: What do you think will be the next stage? What do we need to do to get a bit further with this work?
8: Well, I think there are two major directions. One, we need to understand the mathematical underpinnings of all of these ideas with yet greater precision. That is vital in order that we can make more precise statements of what experimenters and observers of astronomy should find. And then on the experimental and observational front, we need to keep pushing onward. I mean, the Large Hadron Collider is a device that may give us a lot of insight in the coming years. Some of the parallel universes' proposals do come out of string theory, and we need to see whether string theory is right or wrong. There's at least a chance that the Hadron Collider could give us some insight, looking for supersymmetric particles, a class of particles that string theory says should be out there, but we've not seen, the idea of extra dimensions, which comes from string theory. The collider actually has a chance of finding them. How? Slam two protons together. The equations show that some of the debris created in that high-energy collision can be ejected out of our dimensions into the others. How would you notice that? The debris would take away some energy, which means our detectors would measure less energy after the collision than before. So there's a real possibility for some interplay between experiment, observation and theory, and they all need to go forward hand in hand. Brian Green from Columbia University.
1: We included that interview in a recent Naked Scientists podcast, where we were also joined by Dr. Chris Lester to discuss some of the experiments currently going on at the LHC. You can find that podcast online at thenakedscientists.com slash podcasts. That's all for this month's Naked Astronomy, though. Next month, we bring you the highlights from the National Astronomy Meeting in Klandudno. If you've got any questions or comments for us, then do get in touch by email to astronomy at com. If you'd like to subscribe to the Naked Astronomy podcast, search for us on iTunes or join us at thenakedscientists.com slash astronomy. Naked Astronomy is produced by me, Ben Valsler, from the Naked Scientists, and it comes to you from Cambridge University with support from its 800th anniversary team and the Science and Technology Facilities Council.